Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. Today is like the culmination of a lifelong interest in interviewing this next guest. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author. He is a number one USA Today bestselling author. He is a number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author. His leadership videos have been seen by over 100 million people. I am honored to welcome the author of his most recent book, High Performing Habits, How Extraordinary People People Become That Way. Brendan Burchard, welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Scott, it's a pleasure to be here, man. I appreciate the intro. Hey, so we kind of have dueling sets today. Mine's a little more intellectual. Yours is a little more laid back. Tell us where you're joining us from today. I'm in Puerto Rico right now. And uh, we've been down here throughout the last couple months and very blessed to be here and, and safe and enjoying the sun and uh, building a great community and, and business down here as well. So it's been great. Brendan, honestly, it's an honor to have you. You are world renowned in terms of your books, your keynote speeches, your energy, your contagious enthusiasm for leadership development, personal development. I know you are a fan of Dr. Stephen R. Covey's because you've written about it, and we're honored to have you as one of our guests today. For those final few people in the far-flung part of the world that may not have touched your energy and passion around personal development, would you take a few minutes and walk our listeners and viewers today for a little bit of your professional journey, and including how you came to write this new number one book, High Performance Habits? Ooh, big question. You know, I fell in love with personal development when I was a 19-year-old kid. I had been through the breakup with the first woman I ever loved. We thought we were going to get married, uh, and that relationship fell apart in college. I went to the University of Montana. And when that relationship fell apart, I fell apart because my entire identity was tied up into the relationship. And I fell into a deep depression, eventually suicidal thoughts, and I had planned to take my life. And then uh, the school year closed. I got a job opportunity uh, with an entrepreneur to go down to the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean, only about 100 miles that way from here. And I had uh, a car accident there. And the car accident that I was in, I wasn't driving the vehicle, uh, I was just in the car. It caused a radical transformation in my life because we rounded a corner going about 85 miles an hour. And that corner became the turning point in my life because up to that point, I thought I wanted to die. I was miserable. I was unhappy. I was depressed. I was suicidal. And then faced with the brunt of it as the car rolled off the highway several times, I got knocked out. Um, When I came to, I had this really profound experience where I pulled myself through the windshield of this car and I stood up on the hood of the car and I looked down and I was bleeding everywhere. And I felt this terror as a young man realizing that life can end. And I don't think I'd ever had reverence for life before, but I got it at that moment. And I felt like I'd gotten this second chance because I, I had this moment on the, on the hood of the car where I had a connection. And I just knew, Scott, I was gonna be okay. And I always say, you know, when you, when you kind of crash into death's doorway in whatever way, you're forced to evaluate your life. You're forced to ask questions about whether or not you are happy with your life. And my questions, I was just wondering if I'd lived my life. I'd wondered if I'd loved other people. I'd wondered if I'd made a difference. And that became something 
that became something important to me. I felt like I got a second chance at life. And I said, well, it, it, if I'm going to make it through this, which I did, I don't want to, you know, completely ruin the story for everybody, but I'm here. I'm okay. <laughs> you know, but I survived and I realized I wanted to live. I didn't want to die. I wanted to love, even though my heart had been broken. And I wanted to make a difference, even though as a 19 year old kid, I never really thought about that. So when I went back to the university, I said, I'm going to figure out how to live and love and matter. But I also knew I was a broken young man. And so I started reading personal development. I started reading and started with like Brian Tracy and Dale Carnegie and Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn and Wayne Dyer and Louise Hay and Marianne Williamson and, and you know, Dr. Stephen Covey. Um, and, and I just got into it. And I, I mean, Earl Nightingale. And I, I mean, I just read everything I could in personal development and it changed my life. And I finished college as a student leader. I wrote a book called The Student Leadership Guide while I was in college. Got a job working for Accenture after grad school, where I uh, built change management and leadership development programs for Fortune 500 companies. And then one day I said, okay, after about seven years of building curriculum for others, I decided I wanted to start building curriculum for myself and for my audience. And so I started teaching personal development courses on the internet. And, uh, you know, 300 million views and 2 million students and clients worldwide from 190 countries later, we're on Zoom and doing what I love to do most, which is talking about topics that are important to life and leadership. 300 million views. Your reach is unparalleled. From and no you. cats. No cats in any of the videos. And I'm not funny. So, no. you know, no, you're, they're all... You're, <laughs> you're, 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 you are authentic, you're engaging, you're real, you're relevant, oh, you're raw. You you you, uh, without cats, your ability to uh, conquer uh, a whole generation, a couple generations of people's interest in identifying with the struggle that you had that they have in their own life and build a sense of purpose in their own, I think, is a gift you have given to humanity. That sounds like hyperbole. It is accurate. I think one of the finest compliments I can pay you is our chairman and CEO Bob Whitman. Now you would think he would be someone who had a fair amount of knowledge around habits. You know, we know a thing or two about habits of Franklin Covey. Um, sure. Your book has been on his living room table for like the last two years. When you walk into his cabin in Park City, Utah, this wow. is a man of enormous success. You know, he's earned a couple dollars in his day as you can imagine, but yet you see Brendan Burchard's High Performance Habits book on his table in there for like everyone to see. He's a big fan. I texted him wow. an hour ago and said, you'll never guess who I have on the podcast this morning. He didn't guess right, but he was like overwhelmed uh, with gratitude that you're here. So thank you wow. on behalf of Bob as well. Thank you for sharing that. And hi, Bob. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Brendan, um, number one New York Times bestseller, High Performance Habits. On this program, we've interviewed uh, Charles Duhigg, right, for The Power of Habit. Yeah. Uh, we've interviewed uh, BJ Fogg the, uh, the uh, professor researcher at Stanford University on tiny habits. Of course, Dr. Stephen R. Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has sold 40 million copies in its Amazing. 30th year. Why do you think the quest to understand how to develop, how to integrate habits in our lives is as relevant today as it was 40 years ago when Dr. Covey kind of popularized some of the concepts? Yeah, well, our habits are our lives. Our habits dictate the results we get, but more importantly, our habits dictate how we feel about our lives, about other people, and about how we engage the day. You know, I know mindsets are really popular. I know, uh, you know, setting goals are really popular, but at base, 
life is executed through our habits. Life is experienced through our habits and life is only enriched through our habits because our, our habits are that magical intersection of, of intention and initiative and relationship with others. And when you're able to align those into recurring patterns of thinking, feeling, behaving, interacting and leading in a way that's more conscious, more intentional, more thoughtful, life truly becomes enriched and expands. And unfortunately, a lot of people have never thought of truly developing deliberate habits, which we call uh, in, in the book, High Performance Habits, we talk about deliberate habits. That idea that this is consciously something that I'm doing that is pushing me and that is making me better, that is demonstrating integrity and making a difference. And very few people are aware of their own habits. And even if they are, they're not aware of the habits that matter most towards long-term success, well-being, um, and that's what we measure. Brendan, your influence, I think, is right now incomparable. We share a similar connection through uh, Rachel and Dave Hollis. We both spoke at yeah. one of their, uh, I think you've spoken at all of their events. I spoke at their Rise business event in Charleston. You were on day one. I was on day three. Remind me how you met and became acquainted with the, the Hollis group. Uh, Rachel loves high performance habits. That's it. She started posting a bunch on social media. I love this book. She basically did like a mini book club of high performance habits. And this is before she really took off, right? Yeah. Um, and so she was, I was seeing her pop up in my feed. And uh, one day I, I thanked her for recommending the book. And uh, she reached out and we started a, a connection just on social media. And then uh, I invited her up to uh, my home in Portland, Oregon, her and Dave. And they came up and they were, you know, really just beginning. They didn't have really products or services in our industry yet, in the, in the thought leader industry yet. And uh, so I spent a day just consulting with them and showing them the business models of our industry yeah. and how they work and making a few recommendations. We became fast friends that day and uh, still are to this day. And I've just really loved helping, providing any ideas, assistance. Uh, Rachel's first six big paid speeches were all on my stages. So it was uh, just watching them take off like a rocket in service to others. Is, I mean, that's that's a blessing. And, and they're great, great people and great friends. The reason I asked this, and I knew part of that story was because I want to compliment you and for that matter, the Hollises for being um, igniters of other people's impact. The same thing happened to me. Rachel Hollis read my first book, Management Mess, Leadership Success. She heard about me on the Donald Miller uh, podcast. She uh, reached out to me and put me on stage. And what she's done for my own platform is remarkable. I think something that you share in common with this posse of influencers, the Hollises, Trent Shelton, Ed Milet, is that you turn the spotlight frequently on to other people. This is a habit of high performance leaders, is it not? Is, is setting the stage for other people to find their passion to fulfill their mission. Yeah, I mean, that's part of our habit of influence is asking what is the influence we wanna have in the world? And I think when we can come to that question from a place of humility, we realize that we individually through our own works will have a certain ripple effect. And yet we also, when we can empower others, that ripple effect effect is extended 
well beyond our own current capabilities um, or even platforms. And so a lot of people just mentioned, you know, uh, boy, I, I was blessed to meet them very early on. And many of them um, were just trying to figure out this industry. You know, I've, I've been in this industry full time doing nothing but teaching, training, consulting, coaching, building programming for leadership and personal development um, since 2001, really. Um, and as, as my own brand since 2003, four. Uh, and so there's a business model here. There, there's habits that we do to build our own careers and our own brands. And, and once you tell someone, hey, this is the thing, this, here's the play. Once someone has a playbook, they can go and really make a great difference with it. So what great leaders do in my imagination isn't just pump other people up or inspire them. It's to understand what their goals are. And they say, oh, I understand that's what you're trying to do. Here's a playbook yeah. of best practices that works to do just that. And then stand back and be a great supporter and cheerleader and let them with their own grit and hard work run and execute that playbook, innovate on that playbook, make it better and, and make their difference. You just described the role that every leader should be playing inside organizations, right? Is to not try to get people to be engaged, but understand what is it you want to accomplish that we need to you know, value as well? And how do you build that confidence and that capability in people who work for your teams? Brendan, this, this podcast isn't a book review podcast, but I'm sure people are, are anxious to know what are the high performance habits? You list six of them in your book, organized in kind of two um, collections. One uh, is, uh, the first collection is personal habits. You call them seek clarity, next generate energy, and then raise necessity. Speak for a moment or two, if you will, around those first three habits. Yeah, uh, I think the first distinction about the book that's important for people to realize is it's, as of today, still the world's largest study that's ever been done yeah. on high performers. And that is we identified people from 190 different countries who were the most successful in their fields, their industries. And then we sought to understand a really critical question that hadn't been really studied before, which is, what is it that specifically led to their long-term success that we can measure and we made sure that long-term success included the definition of well-being and positive relationships. Meaning, we didn't want to study the richest guy or gal in town. We want to say, okay, you've succeeded beyond your peers over X number of years, and you maintained well-being, and you maintained positive relationships. And what we found about them was they deliberately practiced these six habits. That first one you mentioned was seek clarity, which is high performers are more likely to seek clarity in any given circumstance than underperformers. Underperformers show up and they say, okay, what's going on here? High performers are constantly asking questions and trying to gain clarity on many things. Gain clarity about themselves, gain clarity about other people, gain clarity about the skills they need to succeed, and gain clarity about the service that matters in that circumstance to be fulfilled. And so high performers are just, you know, you take two people, one person bumbles into the meeting, another person has already thought through diligently and, or seeks in that meeting to gain clarity on what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, I've had the blessing of working with Oprah Winfrey um, in producing multiple courses together and in teaching and training her executive leaders and herself. And if you ever sit down and have a meeting with Oprah Winfrey, her first question is, what's our intention for this meeting? And that is, that's a practice of high performance. That is seeking intention. What, what are we here? What is this about? What, what's our purpose here? And the second one is generate energy. 
And that is high performers have to generate a lot of energy, not just for the mental stamina to be able to endure, but they've got to generate a lot of energy so that it, 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 they take care of their health because they can't burn out. And because their energy is being projected into the world and felt in the world by those that they lead. So we all say, please be responsible for the energy that you are projecting into the world. And to do that, you need good well-being practices. Uh, and the third thing that you mentioned there was raise necessity. High performers raise what we call psychological necessity. That is, it, we make it in our minds needed or necessary to perform with generosity and excellence in any given situation. You know, lots of people can just show up, but a high performer, they kind of key themselves up. They, they develop the edge. They, uh, you know, use their mindset to really engage in the moment and make success a must, not a preference. And so I always say, you know, uh, the person with the most necessity is usually going to win. I, I blessed to coach some Olympic sprinters and one that I coach, I, I remember asking her, you know, how, how do you know who's going to win this race? I mean, it always comes down to just fractions of, I mean, tiny amounts of, you know, milliseconds here between, you know, in, in your race, who do you know who's going to win? And she says, well, I don't know, but when I, when I go to the blocks and I look forward and I see the finish line out in front of me, I think I'm going to win this one for my mom. And so she's asking, who, who needs me on my A game? Who needs me to do great right now? I want to do great right now for my mom. And that keys her up to another psychological level of performance. And high performers do that. They don't even know that they're doing that, but they're literally using their mindset or asking the set of questions that make it necessary for them to do great. Brendan, so beautifully said. This one around energy. I mean, you are a contagiously high energy person. I can relate. Sometimes my own energy is fatiguing. What do you do, what practices, what habits do you have in your life that help you maintain an extraordinary amount of energy? It's palpable, right? I actually quite um, frankly love it. It gravitates me towards you. What do you do that others could benefit from to keep your energy so uh, resilient? Oh man, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's it sometimes hard to demonstrate that through Zoom, right? <laughs> um, most people see me on, um, usually be on stages and you see me spring along, you know, 38 foot stages for, you know, four days um, at our seminars. So I, I'm somebody who I, I really, first I'm blessed to have had uh, uh, parents who were incredible and had a great attitude. Um, even though we went through extraordinary hardship growing up, living below the poverty line in Montana and somehow them raising four awesome kids. Um, my mom is somebody who practices what I teach in the book, and that is this concept of bring the joy. It is, it's the idea, it's got like, if you ever come to my house and you're like, Brandon, what should I, should, should I, should I bring some, some food, uh, you know, potluck, you want to bring some wine or, or something? And I'll say, no, no Scott, shut up. just bring the joy, man. Bring the joy, bring an attitude of positivity, of generosity, of receptivity, of openness, uh, so I think it starts with that attitude first. And then there's a lot of physical practices, physical practices of every 50 minutes, I stand up from my desk and I stretch out. Uh, physical practice of every morning when I wake up, I have my morning routines. Physical practices of you know setting up block time where I only work for 45 minutes of discipline time, then I, then I take a pit stop, I take a break. So I'm recharging throughout the day yeah. instead of burning out throughout the day. Uh, things of knowing when to call it, quits at the end of the night, not working too late, 
not you know consuming screen time, doing three, two, one sleep, which is three hours before bed, don't eat. Two hours before bed, uh, don't do any work. One hour before bed, don't look any screens, and you'll sleep your eight hours much more often. And being able to be you know being able to take care of yourself in a way in which you sleep, uh, you take what we call your meds. Meds are meditation, exercise, diet, uh, sleep, and supplementation. So when you do the right things to take care of your mindset for attitude and your physical well-being, you tend to have more energy. You just make me happy being around you. I mean, honestly, you're just like <laughs> a contagious beacon. Um, you too. I got to get some glasses like those. That's the first thing I thought. I said, man, those are some good looking glasses. I got to get me some of those. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got a few pair. I can loan you a few. I got a few extra pair. Uh, Next three habits, section two, the social habits, you call them. First three were your personal habits. Next three are your social habits. Increase productivity, develop influence, and demonstrate courage. Riff on those. Oh, man. Well, first, uh, I'm going to come back to that thing that this is based on the world's largest study of high performers from 190 countries. And the, ring I, the reason I bring that up again is because I didn't know all of these habits, and I wouldn't have ranked them this way. Hmm. Personally, I'll give you an example. If you told me social habits and you said, Brendan, out of the most important habits in the world or even traits of people in the world, you know, being creative isn't on there, you and I would have had a good argument because I've studied creativity, I teach creativity. And I'm not saying creativity is not important. It just turned out in this world's largest study that those three were more important to long-term success and well-being and positive relationships. And so again, those are first, your ability to increase productivity. Can you socially with other people increase the productive output of what we're supposed to be doing here? Increase the productive output and the quality of whatever it is we are in charge of. What is our mission? What are we supposed to be doing here? And can we get it from ourselves? Can we become productive members of an organization or a team? And can we inspire that productivity in other teams? I know that's so basic, but of course, Companies need to be very aware of their productivity, but they have no idea how to measure it. Then we have to be able to develop influence. And, and I think Franklin Covey is better at teaching this than anyone in the world, frankly. So uh, I think it's really important to understand that influence is not an accident, but most people develop it in an accidental way. It turns out the world's most successful people and leaders, the way that they develop influence is based on three things. Number one, they develop influence because they teach people how to think. Usually they teach people how to think for themselves. So a great leader is constantly asking their people questions so their people are forced to gain their own clarity. But they're also literally teaching people how to think. They're saying, okay, y'all, this is how we should think about this opportunity. This is how we should think about our competitors. This is how we should think about ourselves and how we work together as a team. So they're telling people literally, this is how we should think. They're opening that and they're also directing that. The second thing they're doing is they are challenging others. They're challenging others on their character, on their relationships, and on their contributions. And they're giving that direct feedback, that direct coaching that helps other people raise their A game and they're not shy about it. And then the last way they influence people is they role model the way. They specifically are intentional about the values and the style in which they want people to show up, work, deliver, and serve, and they demonstrate that. And then that last habit is my favorite one, uh, probably my most efficient one, 
which is demonstrate courage. High performers worldwide, I was so inspired by these stories and the research of, uh, you know, Scott, I think you know this, but measuring courage is really hard, especially measuring it academically like we did. So our whole book and our whole efforts and our assessments have all been academically validated. And it was really hard to figure out how, how do we define it in a way we can measure it across cultures. But it turns out that what courage really is, is you tend to speak up more for your own thoughts, ideas, beliefs, needs than other people. And you speak up for other people to have their right to share their thoughts, ideas, needs, and dreams. So courage, we always think about it as like, it's some like bold action against risk. But what it actually operationalizes in organizations and in real life is it's more expression. I'm more free to express who I truly am and what I truly need. And I'm gonna encourage you to do that. And if someone's pushing you down or bullying you or not asking to call on you at a meeting, I'm gonna say, wait, 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 Susan hasn't gotten to spoke, speak yet. Oh, hold on, this person hasn't gotten to impart their thing. Like they'll pass the talking you know, torch and they'll let other people share. And it's speaking up for yourself and other people over and over and over and over again is something that high performers tend to do much more than underperformers. Uh, I'm, I'm riveted listening to you because I see a lot of Dr. Covey in you as you speak oh and as gosh. you as you share. It's a compliment. Um, a, oh, a man uh, kind of raised me from a pup in the firm and passed eight years ago. But as I listen to you and watch you, I see a lot of and hear a lot of what Dr. Covey was so passionate about. Uh, oh, he was a huge influence in my life. In mine as well. In mine as well. I can I can see and it here in you. Uh, the book is insanely well-researched, as you mentioned. There's a reason why the chairman and CEO of Franklin Covey has your book, and only your book, on his living room end table. Uh, and I've read a few books in my day. You can see them behind me. I know a few things about the yeah. book industry. One of my favorite passages of, any book, passages of any book ever written is in your book, High Performance Habits. And I don't do this very often. I'm, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs out of your book. So indulge me, and I want you to expand on them. It's on page 188, as if you would know, Brandon. But let me read this. You, you, you um, popularized this concept called PQO, PQO. Let me read a couple of passages, and I want you to take it deeper for us. You write, high performers have mastered the art of prolific quality output, PQO. They produce more high quality output than their peers over the long term. And that is how they become more effective, better known, and more remembered. Their aim, their intention, and consistent efforts towards PQO, they aim their attention and consistent efforts towards PQO and minimize any distractions, including opportunities that would steal them away from their craft. I mean, this one paragraph differentiates high performers from everybody else who desires high performance. And this idea around not being distracted by opportunities is especially relevant in my life. Just two days ago, I finished a 2,000-word article for a business magazine in Utah. And I said to my wife, that's it, I'm done, I'm not writing anymore, I'm gonna keep my ink column and my blog, but I'm not writing anymore, my manuscript is due to my publisher in like nine days, I have nothing else. The next day, the editor calls me and says, you know what? We have a column every week from executives. They ask questions. Do you want to field this one? And I said, yes. 
I was a total <laughs> hypocrite. I've spent two hours on it, which is two hours I've not spent on my previous promise to my manuscript. I'm a total fraud on this. Use me as, uh, use me as a student to talk about this concept of PQO and why it's been such a differentiator in your own life as you went through your own discernment process on what you wanted and how you came about deciding how important books were to your PQO. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, first brother, everyone can relate with that. You know, that it's one of the hardest things in the world is to not only know what we really want to do and what's going to make our ultimate impact and difference, but then to prioritize that. And so what's interesting about the book is a lot of people, they get to that chapter and they're kind of stuck, Scott, because they're like, well, I don't have clarity. And I go, well, go back to the first habit because you, you better seek clarity and figure out what is it that is important to you, your impact, your life, your career. And you'll know that once you've chosen a field or you're working at some place, what matters is, am I creating the things that matter and move the needle the most? We call them needle movers. That high performers, this, and I'm guilty of this too, so I'm going to relate with you, buddy. I, I was, they spend 60% of their week on PQO. So if they're a salesperson, they're, they're not doing administration for 60% of the week. They're selling for 60% of the week, right? If they're, uh, you know, if you're looking at like people in our industry, I said, well, what makes somebody a legend in our industry or, or gets to the top? Oh, look, that's funny. They tend to have books. They tend to teach online. Uh, they tend to have live seminars. I guess I need to develop expertise, competency, and real discipline in each of those areas. And if I, if I do those enough with the things that we talk about in that chapter about developing real expertise over and over and over, and I focus there, not get distracted, well, then I can't help but come up on top because that's the best practices it seems to work. And so we've just got to find those things that really, really make the difference for us in whatever field of endeavor, because I know not everyone watching this wants to write books or do what we do and teaching online or, or at live events. It can be as simple as, okay, when you look at all your peers at work, who's the top producer? And what is it they're really doing with their time? What are they producing? And in every industry, it tends to be there's an output. There is something specifically they create. They're not just, you know, well, it seems like they make lots of PowerPoints. No, what really moves them ahead is they're closing more deals. Or, oh, no, what really moves them ahead is they're completing more projects that earn revenue for the company. And so once you understand, that's what I got to do. I got to have winning projects or PQO, things that get completed. And the more of those things that I complete, the more my career will advance. Brendan, I may have missed it because I was so captivated on your own journey. Was PQO your own term? Did you aggregate that from some of the research? How did you land on the PQO focus and concept? Yeah, it, you know, it began with uh, the study of expertise. And I'd study a lot of, you know, the handbooks of developing expertise and developing skill sets. And, and you hear all about this repetition, right? Your 10,000 hours that you're putting in. Right. And people were confusing sometimes process from output. Because you and I both know a lot of people who do a whole lot of process, but they never get nothing done. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I said, well, there's a missing ingredient here. It's not just the, the number of hours, the, the depth that they do in the process. It's, the, it's both what they are putting out and then the feedback they are getting about that to develop true world-class expertise. 
And so uh, through that process, um, I realized that output really mattered. And I was on a conversation uh, on, on, I did 300 uh, academically structured interviews with high performers around the world. And uh, I was on a call with um, a gentleman from Singapore and he used the word prolific. And it just kind of came together for me. It's like, oh yeah, it's, it's gotta be prolific and it's gotta be quality output and you gotta, if you, if, and then it just hit me. And then I started asking more about that, diving deeper in the research and it just came to be true. Brennan, our time is tight, but I wanna pack in a couple more um, concepts for our listeners. You talk about chart your five moves. In fact, I think the quote in the book is, if there were only five major moves to make that goal happen, what would they be? Can you give our viewers and listeners some concept on the value of your five moves? Yeah, oh man, you just made every project manager who's listening right now, their ears are perking up, they're ready. He's, he's bringing us the gospel of project management. Can uh, I hear but, an amen? <laughs> oh, here he comes with that project management. Uh, listen, there is no goal that can't be achieved in five moves. Your goal, your job is to figure out, okay, what are the five major moves it would take to achieve that? You know, take our world, book publishing. Okay, one of the major moves is write the book. <laughs> but then it's about, okay, another major move, get that publisher. Another major move is launch that book. Another major move is run campaigns forever on that book. Okay, big moves. And now you know those moves. You break them down into action items, steps, deadlines, deliverables, et cetera, which I know any consultant or project manager here is listening to. It just happens to be that the vast majority of people don't have a clue about that in their own personal life. They've never really broken down their dreams that way. More people who are listening right now have spent more time planning out projects for their company and for their teams than they've ever done for their own dream. High performers have identified what is it that I am trying to achieve here? And they break it down. They do better career management because of that. They climb higher, faster because of that, because they're working backwards. I mean, this is, this is Covey, not me, right? Begin with the end in mind. Well, there's the end. There's only five major steps to get there. Break each of those steps down into you know, other levels. Follow that plan and you'll get it done. The concept reminds me a lot of the genius that is in the book, The One Thing on the Wall by Gary mm. Keller and Jay Papazan, where they talk yes. about goal setting to the now, right? The same thing you're talking about is breaking down these lofty long-term goals into very clear steps. Brendan, you also have a mastermind. And I'd love to have you talk about that. And would you just maybe start with explaining to those maybe people who have heard about it but aren't quite sure what is a mastermind? How do you join one? Can you kind of revisit that concept of a mastermind and talk a bit about the one that you've created? Uh, so I've got multiple masterminds. Some masterminds you charge money for to bring a group of people together to brainstorm and work on their lives or their businesses. And, and some other ones you just do as peer groups that you get people together who are extraordinary and you want to learn from and contribute to. But a mastermind is a group of people who come together, share what their thoughts, needs, dreams are, and work together to figure out how they can do that. You get feedback or intel or best practices from other people. Sometimes you also just get emotional support because, you know, as everyone listening knows, sometimes as you're driving really hard, sometimes your family might not understand. Sometimes, you know, people at your work might not understand your ambition and your drive and your goals and your hopes. So you get around a quality of people who are on that path, the quality of people who are strivers, quality of people who are high performers, and you share what you're working on, how you're going about it, what results you're getting, and they share theirs back, and collectively, 
you end up more informed, more energized, more capable and more ready. And so uh, I've, I've got multiple ones. I've got client ones who are like CEOs of companies who we, we charge money for and we bring together. And I've got people in our industry who are part of that. And I also have, you know, peers of our industry who I see is up and coming and we'll bring them together and we'll just brainstorm. So you mentioned, you know, the Hollis has been in my mastermind. Trent Shelton, you mentioned he's in my mastermind. Ed Milad uh, is coming to our next one apparently. Uh, but we've had, you know, billionaires like Jamie Kern Lima or we, we've got, uh, you know, Jay Shetty is a huge social media influencer. Right. Lewis Howes, mm-hmm. uh, gosh, Jenna Kutcher, uh, Boss Babes. Uh, <laughs> gosh, there's a list goes on, you know, probably... If you look at the top 100 influencers in the world, probably 60 of them have been in a mastermind with me. Yeah. Um, well, and usually it's it's not it's not because I'm fancy people. It's because I invite them down to Puerto Rico and they're like vacation and <laughs> and I feed them food. I feed them great food and we do it in Puerto Rico next to the beach. And, and they food. just bring the joy. That's it. They just bring the joy. Literally, that's it. I just say come up, just come share, and and I create a little curriculum for each day where they're sharing specific ideas and, and we're working on them. Like, so the whole group focuses on, yeah. you know, their goals or their dreams or their business. And, and it's a great time. Dude, throw me a bone. I need a spot in that. Uh, <laughs> I know. Brendan, I can't believe I'm using these words in the same sentence to describe someone. Number one, New York Times bestselling author. Number one, USA Today bestselling author. Number one, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. 300 million people have viewed your videos. You are at the top of your game in terms of performance and contribution. What's next for you? Uh, gosh. Um, Surviving COVID. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Making it through this time and, and helping the industry through this time and, and, and trying to be a good leader through this time is, is a lot. You know, we've got hundreds of employees in my companies. And so we're really trying to take care of the people that we love and serve with and lead with. Um, that's, that's a big focus right now. Uh, but next, honestly, for me, I, I'm one of those guys, Scott, this happens until the end of my life. I, I, I found this is my purpose, is to help people improve their lives, achieve their dreams faster and make a difference. And uh, I'll do this forever. So for me, the next level for me is always the next level of research. You know, I didn't, I, I could have gone from, you know, the Motivation Manifesto, which is my book before High Performance Habits, and not decide to spend three years and over a million dollars in researching what became High Performance Habits. I didn't have to do the academic work, but for me, I think what makes a difference in our industry is when people will go to that level of rigor, not just say, hey, I think this makes a difference or get behind a personal development you know, phrase or meme, but rather say, okay, how do you know what you are teaching works? Have you had the discipline to measure it academically? Have you proved it out? Have you shown that the evidence clearly suggests this because you did the rigorous analysis, because you ran the data, because you tried to replicate it, because you had other people poke holes at it? That for me is what's fun because I don't think I'm like a super genius. What I love to do is do the research, see that the literature suggests suggests this, do interventions with people through our seminars and our coaching because we have the largest coaching organization in the world for high performers in terms of getting them coaching. And then I say, okay, with everything we're learning, can we measure it and what works? And man, I just, I don't know, Scott, about you. I love being wrong. Like I said earlier, I thought creativity would be in the top six habits of all high performers. It doesn't mean it's not, it's, it's not important. It means that correlations show that these other six just were a little bit of it in the data. 
So I say, oh, okay, that's an interesting distinction. And so I, I got to tell, I'm a geek. I dork out about that stuff. I, I love learning. Brendan, other than buying the book, which I'm going to ask all of our listeners and viewers to do first, send us off with a nugget. Beyond these six habits that they'll learn from the book, what's one thing someone can start doing today? Kind of like, you know, Dr. B.J. Fogg taught this concept of tiny habits. Well-researched book. He's a hoot. Um, and not to mention a really fine person and researcher. Yeah. What's something you can send everybody off to to say, you know what, start doing this today and you'll be on your way to creating some high-performing habits? I think right now to adopt the role model mindset is everything. To me, the role model mindset, uh, I'm working on a book on it right now, is it, it, it is about us before going in any situation, asking ourselves, how do I demonstrate real character and integrity here and serve as a role model that, of those who I'm working with? And how do I also recognize them and make them role models here? Because I really believe when you frame things from a role model mindset, you become less reactive, you become less judgmental, you are acting from a place of value and integrity right off the bat. It's like, you know, it's like when you know you want to be a role model, you kind of, you know, you stand up a little more straight, you know, you adjust yourself a little bit, you have a better attitude about things, and you're aware that people are watching how you are showing up in the world. Some parents never really realize how much their kids are watching them. Some leaders never really realize how much their team is watching them and they miss opportunities. So I think when you adopt the role model mindset, it's the first domino. It's like a domino of all other good character traits come from that because now you're more intentional and aware. Brendan Burchard, dude, you brought the joy. Thank you, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. Hey, I really appreciate this time together and you've been awesome to me. And uh, I know you're making such a difference and Knowing how long you've been at Franklin Covey, that's so inspiring to me. And I'd, I'd just like to thank you and the entire team there because you made a tremendous difference in my life. Thank you for being so gracious and, and a gentleman. You don't do many interviews so that you granted us one. We're appreciative of I hope your wife and you um, quarantine well in Puerto Rico and you make it back to Oregon with your team safely. And we'll see you back here on Leadership for your next book. I'd love to. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Thank you, Brendan. Hey, thanks for joining us. High Performance Habits, How Extraordinary People Become that way. Pick up a copy of this book and we'll see you back here next week with a new guest for On Leadership.